If you have your copy of God's Word this morning, let's turn together to the book of Daniel. A couple of weeks ago, we finished up Daniel chapter 1, and we're continuing our process and study uh, through this book. And as I noted a couple of weeks ago, you know, that this book has oftentimes been shrouded in mystery and kind of shrouded in, I don't want to say confusion, but shrouded in such a way that oftentimes people read it and feel um, very confused by what they're reading in comparison to oftentimes what they're told um, that this book is supposed to mean. But we're doing our very best to look at this just in clear context of how Daniel wrote this book and what it means to us today, but more importantly, what it meant in that period of time. Uh, that's the importance of context in Scripture, is not always what do we think it means, because it only means what it means. Now, God, hey, there's one interpretation of Scripture and many applications of Scripture. So when we look at the context, we have to understand Daniel wrote this in a period of time, describing events that happened in his life for a specific purpose, and not only to the people of God, but even to the people of the world, to describe the things that God was going to be doing in the future. Now, us being in the future, looking back to see the fulfillment of all the events that Daniel spoke of here, we have to ask ourselves this question, what is God describing here for us, and how does it apply to us in this day and time? Now, this morning, I am uh, not going to ask you to stand as I normally do, because we're actually going to read the entirety uh, of the book, I mean, the entirety of chapter 2 this morning, uh, because it's really important for us to set the context of what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. Um, and so I, feel, I thought it would be uh, well for us to just read this entire chapter, and then we will dive in again, like I said, over the next couple of weeks in, in understanding what uh, Daniel is describing here to us. So if you found your way there, Daniel chapter 2. And I want to start with verse 1. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. The king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch that you have seen the command from me is firm. And if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter. For the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, 
For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mystery has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue is made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out with hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like a chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found." But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the son of men dwells, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you there will rise another kingdom inferior to you, and another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, insomuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, 
So some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they would not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him a ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. This is the word of the Lord. It's an interesting chapter. It's really incredible to see what happens here because we find Daniel coming out of his years of training and and immediately being thrust into a moment that has the potential to change not only the trajectory of his life, but really the trajectory of his three friends' lives and also the lives of really everyone in Babylon, all the other wise men and all of the other of the nation of Israel who had been carried away into captivity. Now, remember here, Daniel is still a very young man. All right, this time after the training, he's probably somewhere between the ages of 17 to 19 years old. And you can imagine in this moment for a young man who, again, carried into captivity, now trained for three years in, in the king's education system to be called to the front. We, we have a, a different perspective and understanding a lot of times in our day and time of, of how capable young people are. Uh, we think about the capabilities of young people today as being far more uh, later into their life. We look back at history. Young people have done really incredible things all throughout history. And here in this moment, we find this, and Daniel professes it, and I, I hope you heard it a couple of times in this chapter. Daniel professes over and over, it's not me who's doing this. It's the God of heaven. He's just using me. So young people in the room this morning, I would encourage you to pay careful attention to what Daniel teaches us is that you don't have to be an older person. You don't have to be a, a, a 40 or 50 or an 80-year-old person for God to use you mightily for his kingdom. If you're here this morning, you're 14, 15, 17, 19 years old, God can usually mightily for his kingdom if you are willing to give yourself over to him. If you're willing to submit yourself and to follow his commands and to be faithful, that he's going to be faithful to you, God will use you for the good of his kingdom. So here we find Daniel. Now I want you to notice there, there's a couple of things, and we're going to walk through this uh, again just uh, uh, briefly this morning and, and kind of get this groundwork laid because there's a lot to unpack inside this chapter. But notice there in verse 1, it says, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, that he had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. I want you to first notice here that we're going to talk about this unshakable dream. Now, if you're here this morning and you sleep, then you've had dreams. 
Now, oftentimes we don't remember our dreams when we wake up. For some reason, our brains just don't work that way. We don't always remember what we dream at night. But how many of you have ever been woken up in the middle of the night by a dream that was so real that it shook you to your very core? Something happened in that dream and you wake up, either maybe it's a nightmare and you wake up just, uh, just anxious or you just wake up just stunned by how realistic that dream was. We find here that Nebuchadnezzar was plagued not just by one dream, but by a, a succession of dreams because it's used in the plural there. And so that almost every night he was continuing to have these dreams and these things at night over and over and over again that caused his spirit to be troubled and he couldn't sleep. Now you can imagine the responsibilities of a man who's leading a kingdom this large, the stresses and the levels of the day, all the things that he had to take care of, and yet he couldn't even sleep at night. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who was on edge because he was unable to sleep. He was a man on edge because he knew there had to be something about this dream that was significant because he continued to have it over and over again. Throughout the Old Testament and even throughout the, the history of time, dreams have always held a much more significant role in things than we give them credence to in modern times. Throughout the Old Testament, you see God often spoke to people through dreams and visions. So Nebuchadnezzar understood, even though he was not a follower of the God of Israel, he understood that sometimes significant things were being relayed to him in dreams. So now he was perplexed. I keep having this dream. It is, it is overwhelming to me. I can't sleep. My spirit is troubled. I need to know what this dream is about. So Nebuchadnezzar did the only thing that he knew to do. Verses 2 through 4 tells us that he calls in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. Now, all of these are just generalized terms of different men during that day who practiced the kind of supernatural arts. Uh, they would practice divination and the, and the dark arts, using all these kinds of things in order to answer the king's request whenever they were called upon. It's very similar to what happened um, in the nation of Egypt. When Moses went in and God called him to go and stand before Pharaoh, and all the plagues would be presented to, uh, to Egypt, and the Pharaoh's magicians and conjurers would try to do similar types of events and cause things to happen. Now, these are not magicians as we would define the term today. These are not men who are just doing sleight-of-hand tricks, although sleight-of-hand was a part of what they did. These are men who had given themselves over to Satan, given themselves over to evil forces, and they were able to perform and do somewhat seemingly miraculous things from time to time. But oftentimes, a lot of what they were doing is the same thing that happens today when you drive down the street and you see somebody who is a fortune teller, right? You go into a fortune teller today, they're not really telling you the future. They're just doing a cold reading on somebody. And they're going to sit there and be like, now you have somebody in your family whose name begins or has the letter A in it, right? And immediately, like, how, how did you know? That's amazing. But that's what they do. And that's exactly what these type of men would do. And, and so the, here's how the situation typically worked. The king would call the conjurers in. He would call the magicians in. And he's like, I had a dream and I need its interpretation. And here is what the dream was. And he would lay that dream out before them. Now, it, it was basically just like an open buffet, right? Because the king had laid out this dream. Now, all these men could just confer together and they could agree upon what they thought the dream was about. And if they told the king... They didn't have anything to fear because they were supposedly the wisest men in the kingdom. They were supposedly the ones who had the connection with the spiritual world. So basically, whatever they told the king, he was going to believe them. So he calls them because he desires to know exactly what is going on. He desires to know the truth of what this dream means. 
Now, it's interesting to note here that when the king calls all these magicians and conjurers in, that for some reason, he does not call Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in alongside of them, even though they had been trained in the same situation. They were, they were ready to do this same type of work, but for some reason they aren't called in. And remember in chapter one, it talked about how God had blessed Daniel and his friends with great wisdom and power and understanding. And one commentator pointed out that this is, again, one of those clear evidences of God's faithfulness and sovereignty throughout the midst of Daniel's life. Because as we see later on in the chapter, the king's response to these men is such that he's going to put them to death because they cannot interpret the dream. And if Daniel and his friends had been called to the king this first time, they would have not had the opportunity to do what they were going to do later on. Now, Daniel and his friends might have saw this as a missed opportunity to begin with because the king is calling in all the wisest men of Babylon, and yet they're left sitting at home. But God's sovereignty, God's power is at work. And oftentimes we can be guilty of doing the same thing. We, we can tend to have what I call um, Christian envy. Right? We see other things happening around us, and we're like, well, why is God not doing that in my life? Why am I not being given that same opportunity? Brothers and sisters, trust the providence of God. Trust the providence of God that He knows what is best for you in your circumstances. See, He calls them in and desires to know the truth of what's going on. But notice what happens here. They do exactly what they're expecting for the king to do. They come in and they say, tell us your, uh, your dream, and we will declare to you the interpretation. But now something happens here because the king does something that he has never done before, and he lays out an ultimatum to all of these wise men and these magicians. Verse 5, he says, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation. So the king has changed. Now all of a sudden, he's not even going to tell them what the dream is. He says, not only do you have to tell me the interpretation of the dream, he says, but first, you have to tell me what the dream was. So basically, he's, he's doing a testing grounds or a proving grounds with all these wise men. Now, we don't know what had happened, but we can, we can draw the conclusion here that for some reason, the king had begun to have a lack of faith in his wise men. For some reason, he has now begun to think that maybe they're not always telling him the truth, that maybe that sometimes they're just making up what they're telling him. And this dream is so important to Nebuchadnezzar that he can't take any chances on having a false interpretation. So he decides the best way to do this, he says, not only do you have to tell me what the dream means, but first, you have to tell me the dream. And notice how serious this, because this, this helps us again to understand Nebuchadnezzar's state of mind, which is important throughout this entire chapter, that he is so troubled by this dream, so sleepless, so distraught, that notice what he says, verse 5. He says, if you do not tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. And he says, I'm going to kill all of you. If you don't tell me what the dream was and if you don't tell me what the dream meant, every single one of you is going to die and then I'm going to burn your houses to the ground. That's pretty serious. Right? This, this is how deeply moving this dream was to Nebuchadnezzar. And how desperately he wanted to know the interpretation. It's interesting to see how God will sometimes push people to desperate situations in order to accomplish his purposes. 
God is doing something beautiful here in this chapter. In the end of this chapter, we're going to see this beautiful declaration of the kingdom of Christ and the glory of the gospel to the ends of the earth and for all eternity. But in order for all this to happen, God is pushing this man, Nebuchadnezzar, to the very edge of insanity almost because he is so angry, so frustrated. He's willing to take all these wise men who he has spent years training, he has spent years providing for, years feeding and keeping in his kingdom, and he tells them that if you don't tell me this dream and its interpretation, I'm going to kill every single one of you. But he tells them, but... If you declare to me a dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. So he says, if you tell me the dream, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to give you honor. I'm going to give you reward. I'm going to elevate you up. Now, you can imagine in this moment what these wise men would have been thinking in their minds. And this is, this is a great opportunity, right? The king has promised that if we can interpret his dream... He's going to give us great rewards and great honor in the kingdom of Babylon. What more could you ask for? I mean, they were already in a high position being a part of the king's court of wise men. This is an even greater elevation into the kingdom. So they go back to the king and they ask him a second time. They said, well, king, why don't you just let us know what your dream was and and we'll declare to you the interpretation. You know, come on, king, let's just do this the same way that we've always done it. Tell us what your dream was, and we will tell you the interpretation. And here in these verses is now where we can understand the king's hesitancy. Look at verse 8. He says, the king replied. And he says, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you've seen that the command from me is firm. He says, okay, guys, now you're just stalling, right? Because I have issued my command. I have told you what I require for you. And now you're just trying to postpone the inevitable. He says, if you do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. Verse 9, he says, you've agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know and that you may declare its interpretation. He says, I'm not going to take anything from you except the truth. And the only way that I can know that you're telling me the truth is if you tell me both the dream and what it means. Now, this puts these wise men in an impossible situation, right? Because they might be able to make up a seemingly understandable or logical explanation to the dream that the king might tell them. But there's no way that they can tell the king what his dream was. I mean, he's not even giving him a little bait, right? He's not even saying, you know, I had this dream, and in this dream was this certain figure. He's not giving them anything. And they can't just start making up something, because immediately if they start making up something, the king's going to know that they're lying, and they're going to face death. So really, the only thing they can do is really try to put it back onto Nebuchadnezzar and say, Nebuchadnezzar, what you're doing here is is impossible. There's a confession here of inability. And I, I, I love this fact that What God does in this situation is that he causes those who proclaim to be wise and who claim to have this inner knowledge and to claim to have all this wisdom of the gods of the world, he causes them in this moment to have to confess that they are mere mortals who have no power, that they are mere people who have no ability. 
He, he really takes them from this highest position that they've elevated themselves to and pushes them down to the very depths of their soul. Look at what it says in verse 10. The Chaldeans, and remember that's just a, a collective word for all of these wise men. They answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. So they gave the king three reasons why they couldn't do it. They said, King, what you're asking us to do, Nebuchadnezzar, there is, there is no one on the face of the earth who could do what you're asking them to do. It's an impossible task. And secondly, they, they say, and, and, and as a matter of fact, there's not even another king on the face of the earth who would ask his wise men to do such a thing. This is how impossible it is what you're doing. And then thirdly, they said, moreover, the only person who could do what you're asking us to do would be the gods themselves whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. It would be a God who's in the heavens. It would be one who is far above any of us. Now, why is this important? Why is it important for Daniel to include this? Why is it important for in God's sovereignty for these wise men to say such a thing to the king? Because they're laying the groundwork for what God's going to do through Daniel. Because they're saying, there's not a man on the face of the earth who could do this. But Daniel could. They're saying no other king would ask for anyone to do something like this, but Nebuchadnezzar did. And they say that only the gods could answer your request. There's not a one here that dwells with mortal flesh. And if only the gods can do it, now here's the prime opportunity that God has made that now he's going to reveal himself to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel that he is not just a God, lowercase g, it is talked about here, but he is the supreme God, the God of all the universe, the God of heaven, the God of earth, the God of all majesty. So now Nebuchadnezzar has been confronted with this, that his wisest men in Babylon have confessed, we can't do it. No one on earth can do it. Only a God himself could do what you're asking us to do. None of this seemed to move the king, though. But look at verse 12. He says, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The king was not moved by their passionate speech. He was not moved with sympathy towards them at their inability to do it. But he commanded all of them to be put to death. The king knew that something significant had happened to him. And he was not going to stop until he found out the truth. He was willing to sacrifice the lives of all of these men. And incredibly to note there in verse 13... That all of these wise men who were going to be killed included even those who weren't even present at that moment, including, verse 13 tells us, Daniel and his friends. So Daniel and his friends were not there in that moment. They were not before the king. They hadn't offered anything. They hadn't said anything. But because they had been a part of this training, because they were part of the king's wise men, he was going to kill all of them, not just the ones who were there, but every single one of them, because his desire to know what was going on had moved him to this such anger and hostility 
that he was willing to take all of their lives to burn all their houses down, that he might know the truth. God here in his sovereignty, again, is lining this moment up in a perfect way for Daniel to come in. Now, most of us would look at this situation and say, well, this doesn't seem very hopeful, right? If we didn't have the rest of the book, right, if we didn't have the rest of this chapter, we would get to this moment in the story and say, well, things seem pretty hopeless by now. What, what chance did Daniel and his friends have of surviving? The king has made his decision. He has stated his decision twice. He has sentenced all of them to death. And we know how proud and arrogant Nebuchadnezzar is from history. He's, he's not a man who backs down. He's not a man who equivocates on the things that he's done. He's not a man who shows mercy when he has decided that justice must be accomplished. So it seems to be a hopeless situation. And all because of this unshakable dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. But secondly, I want you to notice here in this passage, starting in verse 13 at the end, that not only was this, there's this unshakable dream, but there was a confident servant. And this confident servant is Daniel himself. Because in this moment, Daniel demonstrates here in this chapter his supreme trust in who God was. That he was not pushed back by this moment. That he was not driven to fear. That he was not driven to doubt. But in fact, he was pushed to a, a boldness that it really is an, is an otherworldly boldness. And we find demonstrated here in Daniel's life that he was not driven to fear and to cower down, but to stand strong upon his trust and resolve in the promises of God. Because Daniel knew what God had promised in his word, right? You, you're going to be carried away into captivity, but I'm not going to abandon you there, right? I'm going to be with you. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to keep you. Daniel knew the promises of God's word throughout all the history of the nation of Israel that he would not leave them nor forsake them. That's the beautiful thing about God's promise. God, God allowed his people to suffer punishment. God allowed his people to suffer judgment. But he had said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So if God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, what does that mean? That means he's with them in the times when he's blessing them. That means he's also with them in the times that he's allowing them to experience judgment and pain and persecution. And Daniel and his friends remembered this. They remembered that they were not left alone. And they understood that they were not here for a, purposeful, for a purposeless trip. God had not allowed them to be carried to Babylon for no reason. He had done it for his perfect purposes. Notice what it says there in verse, at the end of verse 13. Daniel and his friends were going to be killed. So in verse 14, we find that Daniel, again, even at this point, all of a sudden, they're wherever they are in the king's palace or in the king's grounds, and all of a sudden, Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguards, shows up and says, okay, boys, it's time to die. And they have no idea what's going on. They're completely clueless about Nebuchadnezzar and his dream. They're completely clueless about the wise men standing before him and professing their inability. Because in verse 15, it says, then Daniel says to Arioch, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Because we're not talking about a death sentence that's going to be carried out at a later date. No, they're getting ready to get walked out the door and killed immediately. This is, again, how angry the king is. He's not saying, okay, I'm sentencing you all to death, and it'll happen a week from next Thursday. 
Ariok goes to get these men and to drag them out and to kill them immediately. And so that's why Daniel asks, why, why is this so urgent? Why is this, you know, has to happen now? And it says, then Daniel, and then Ariok informed, informed Daniel about the matter. So this was the first moment in which Daniel understood what was going on. So Ariok conveyed to him everything that had happened. Nebuchadnezzar's had this dream. It's caused him to be sleepless. It's caused him to be frustrated. It's caused him to just be distraught with everything. He called in all the wisest men in Babylon, said, tell me the dream. Tell me the interpretation. None of them could do it. And so now the king has said that all of you must die. And it's in this moment that we see this boldness in Daniel's life. Verse 16. It says that Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now, there's a lot in this one verse to think about, right? First, Arioch, the king's commander, he had just witnessed what had happened in the king's courtroom. That the king was so angry, he had sentenced all his wisest men to die. And now Daniel tells him, and Daniel, in a sense, kind of pushes past him because he, he says, I'm going to go in and talk to the king myself. Now, if you're familiar with history, that's not something that you just did on a whim. You didn't just march into the throne room of the king and say, hey, king, I want to sit down and talk to you about something. But again, here we see the sovereignty of God, that God was moving and causing and pushing Daniel in this path. And all of these things were laid out before him. Number one, that Arioch, the king's commander, allowed him to go, allowed him to really kind of break free. Now he had a death sentence on him, right? He was, he was in, uh, in captivity in the sense that he had been arrested. He was going to be put, into, uh, put to death. But for some reason, and we understand that that's God's power, Arioch lets him go. And in somehow, and it's not related to us in the book of Daniel, Daniel already had a recognition before the king that allowed him to go before the king and to make this request. And Daniel's request is interesting to us as well because he asks the king for more time. Now, you remember earlier, just a few verses up, the king has already refused to give more time to all the wisest men in Babylon. Because that's basically what they were asking for. They were asking for more time, and the king said, no, enough is enough. Either tell me now or you're going to die. And so Daniel goes in and makes the same request, and the king grants it. Now, the beautiful boldness here of Daniel is that he's willing, even though he's facing imminent death, he's willing to face death even further by going before the king. But his trust in God, his trust in the faithfulness of God and in the answer to God is that Daniel goes in and says, King, give me just a little bit of time that I may find out this interpretation of your dream and give it to you. Now, you may say, well, maybe Daniel already knew that God was going to do this. But he didn't. God had not told him before this moment, Daniel, you go into the king, you tell him that you can interpret his dream, and then I will give you the answer. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because in just a few verses, we're going to find that after Daniel gets out, he goes and he begins to pray and ask God to give him the interpretation. So what gave Daniel such boldness to be able to do this? It was the same thing that gave Daniel the boldness that when he went before the king's guard who was over him in that education process to say to him, let us just eat vegetables and water 
And after 10 days, we'll prove to you that this is what we should do. And, he, David, and Daniel trusted God that he would do exactly what he should do. Because Daniel was doing what? Daniel was not seeking to do any of these things to make him better. Daniel was not trying to draw attention to himself. Daniel was not trying to do anything to elevate himself in the kingdom of Babylon. Daniel was trying to live his life in every facet to please and to honor the God of Israel. And so Daniel knew. He says, if I operate in such a way, he says, I know I can step out in boldness and faith and trust God, and he will do what is necessary. So Daniel goes in before the king with this bold request. Give me just a few more moments. Give me just another day. Give me a little bit more time that I may seek and declare to you what your dream was about. But this boldness did not only include just going before the king, but this boldness included going before God. Daniel comes back home, verse 17 tells us, and tells his friends about the matter. I love this part. The rest of the friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they didn't even know anything about what Daniel was doing until he got back home. He goes before the king, he asks for more time, he's granted more time, and he comes back. But I love the fact that his friends trusted Daniel so much that they were committed to this process and they were committed to do what was necessary as Daniel was. So it says in verse 18, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. This is a commitment to prayer. Daniel knew that if he was going to see God move and operate in the way that he hoped and desired, that the first thing that he had to do was pray. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember this, that when we're faced with impossible circumstances, when we're faced with difficult moments, when we're in a place where God is calling us to stand boldly, when God is calling us to trust him by faith, the first thing that we need to do is pray. We need to pray for strength. We need to pray for God's will to be done. We need to pray for God's wisdom to be given to us. We need to pray in every shape, form, and facet that God would do exactly what he purposes to do. It was Daniel's first response. They needed compassion and mercy. They needed God to show them and to show through them the truth of who he was. Calvin said this, whenever we fly to God to bring assistance to our necessities, our eyes and all our senses ought always to be turned towards his mercy for his mere goodwill reconciles us to him. When we find ourselves in need of something from God, it's not because God lacks to give to us. It's most often because we have lacked in asking him. This is what Daniel understands. Daniel could have gone home and sat down with his friends and said, okay, guys, let's, let's put together a five-point plan of how we're going to figure out what the king's dream was or figure out a five-point plan of how we're going to get out of here before our heads get cut off. Let's, uh, let's consult with some of the other guys and see if we can figure this out. But no, Daniel says the only thing we can do is pray. I, I promised the king I'm going to come back with an interpretation, and the only way that I'm going to be able to give this interpretation is if God gives it to us. Remember, what do these wise men of Babylon say? There's no human being who can do this. 
There's no person on earth except the gods himself. They, they were speaking truth there. Even though they were false, uh, false um, worshipers, they were still speaking truth. There wasn't a person on earth who could do it outside of God giving it to them. And Daniel understood this fact. So they go to the Lord in prayer and requested that God would give them an answer. But notice the end of verse 18 there. It says so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. There's a sense in here where Daniel's just, he's afraid for his life. Oftentimes we think of great Christian leaders, we think of great bold Christians, and we think that they come to the end of the moment when they're tied to the spire and set on fire or thrown to the lions, that they just have no fear in their hearts. Well, Daniel here seems to be a little afraid, but he trusts the Lord. Daniel trusts the Lord in this moment that he knows that God is not going to take him somewhere and not carry him through. And brothers and sisters, we need to understand, and the book of Daniel is going to relay this to us over and over again, that sometimes God does not rescue us out of our circumstances. Sometimes he just carries us through our circumstances. Daniel was still thrown into the lion's den, but God brought him through. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, but God carried them through. Now, in this moment, we're going to find God operating in the sense that he's going to bring them right up to this moment, and then he's going to rescue them out of it. But again, it's all about this trust in the providence and the sovereignty of a God who does not do things by accident. So Daniel lays it all before the Lord, and he says, Lord, this is up to you. The only way we can do this, the only way that we can give an answer is if by your grace, you show us and give us the mercy that we need and you tell us what the king's dream was. Look at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Next week, we'll pick up here because this prayer of Daniel, there's so much here that we'll spend probably the bulk of our time next week just looking at these next five verses. But I wanted to close with verse 19 because we see here God's answer of mercy and grace in response to a bold trust in him. It says the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. God answered his prayer. They begin to pray. They begin to seek the Lord and they say, Lord, the only way that we can do this is through you. We're trusting you because we're trying to be obedient to you. Will you give us what we need? And the Lord said, yes, I will. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged this morning. That God gives us what we need in the moments that we need them. God could have given Daniel the answer to this prayer or the vision of this a week before it was requested. He could have given it to Daniel even before he did in this moment. But he gave it to Daniel in the specific time in which it was most needed. God draws us to these places sometimes where all of our dependence has to be on him. Where all of our trust has to be in him. Daniel knew that if God didn't answer here, that death was on the other side of the door. And so it drew Daniel to this place that was just complete and unwavering trust in the faithfulness of God. 
So don't be discouraged when God takes you to those places. Don't be discouraged when God puts you in those moments. But understand that he is working out his perfect will and plan in your life. Daniel comes out of the other side of this, a much stronger servant of the Lord because he's been tested and taken through the fire and brought out on the other side again. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find here. Lord, we thank you for just the powerful testimony that is Daniel's life. And Lord, we realize, as we discussed a few weeks ago, that this book is not just about the heroicism of Daniel, Father, but far surpassing that. It's about your sovereignty and your faithfulness to your people. Daniel would have been nothing without his trust in you. Daniel would have been nothing without his belief in your sovereignty operating in all the events of life. Daniel would have been nothing without your grace being bestowed upon his life in so many evident ways. Every step along the way. So, Father, help us to trust that in our own lives, maybe we look at our lives and we think, well, nothing that exciting is happening to me. But, Lord, help us to understand that every single day, that every breath we take, every step we take, Father, is being guided by your sovereignty and is only according to us by your will and your grace in our lives. Lord, as we look back, we can see so many events in our lives that were just demonstrable moments of your goodness and your faithfulness towards us as your people. And that your promise to your people in the Old Testament that you will never leave them nor forsake them. Father, the same promise applies to us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. So, Father, despite how we may feel in a moment, Lord, help us to remember, Lord, your promises. Help us to remember your covenant with us, your people. Help us to remember, Lord, your perfect plan, your sovereignty, your providence in this world. That we may trust more in you. And that, Father, we may see your hand at work in our lives. And we pray all these things this morning in Jesus' name.